Hello and welcome to Stupid Sequence, the show where we make ranked lists of things that don't matter because arguing with your friends is fun. I'm your host, Josh. And I'm your second host, Scott. This is our 12th episode, and we'll start with a quick summary of what the show is. The goal of each episode is to create a ranked list of something, usually media-related. Scott and I will pick a topic before the show and each come prepared with a list of 10. In the first segment, we'll talk about the first five, usually it's the first five items, this week we've got six. From each of our lists in detail, why we feel they fit the list, why they're meaningful to us, or maybe some interesting facts about them. From there, we'll use the second segment to briefly mention the remaining items on our separate list before going head-to-head and arguing over which items belong on the official top ten. This week, our topic is, as we mentioned last week, the top ten fictional ships. Let's start with the rules. This has been a particularly difficult task i think the amount of research that had to be done ahead of time just to put the initial list together at least on my part it it was a bit time consuming but i'm excited to see where we go from here i think it's interesting you say that because this this list was your idea i know and i'm i'm not upset by it i just i didn't realize when i said this suggestion that it was going to be as time consuming as it was but i'm glad it was because it it really gave me a lot of time to think about it and do some good comparisons but let's uh let's lay those ground rules yeah so um a couple of things here one we're not talking about ships in terms of shipping relationship stuff fandom type things uh we're despite talking one about... of the lists that i clicked on that said <laughs> top relationships i'm like oh this is not what i wanted not not quite. That's, it turned out this is kind of hard to Google for because if you Google top, you know, best ships, best fictional ships, you're getting a lot of actual ships. It's a mixed things. bag, hundred yeah. percent. Uh, we're talking about vessels. We're talking about sailing ships. We're talking about spaceships. Uh, you know, things of those things submarines, of that nature. Technically, yeah, submarines fit the bill. We may hear about some submarines on my list. Um, mine as well. We're also kind of talking specifically about ships of a particular size the very small kind of um like an x-wing from star wars would not be eligible because it is a fighter class type of ship we're talking about kind of like larger ships um kind of like you know transports or freighters on up i would say but like single person ships two person ships um the, the more of those fighter class ships and things like that we're not considering those as eligible I would say that 90% of my list adheres to that. My number nine maybe is Mm. questionable in that list, but I'll justify it. We can talk about it. Okay. Uh, The other thing that we're kind of talking about here with ranking is uh, we're trying to rank the ships based on the ships themselves, not necessarily the events that happen on them. Uh, So, for example... Uh, I really like the the book Treasure Island, but I didn't include the Hispaniola from the main ship in that book on my list because as a ship, it is largely unremarkable. It is not really any different from any other uh, t- ship of that type, so wouldn't doesn't make the list because it's not especially remarkable. It's a good good example. Yeah, I had a, a few honorable mentions that I 
wanted to include based on some of those same properties. Right. Significant to me, but maybe not that significant of a ship. The other piece of this that um, made forming this harder for me anyway is uh, we have a strict, on our personal top tens, uh, one item per franchise rule. Which, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. boy, Star Wars has a lot of cool ships and I only got to pick one of them. So uh, we might be we might be hearing a little bit more from uh, uh, from me on that area and honorable mentions, but you know it was tricky to put this list together with with that rule especially in mind. Yeah, I, I felt like it it did make it a little bit more difficult. I, I don't think for me personally it came up too many times. There were probably three that I had considered something else from the same property but ultimately had to make a decision although when i was having conversations with people about this topic ahead of time just to get some other inputs it was somebody would mention one from a like a star wars property and i'd say well is that the best ship in the entire star wars universe and they'd be like well i mean there's always and then you know suddenly it's that that could be a whole separate conversation in and of itself for sure. Especially if we don't limit it to large scale vessels and right. could be, you know, like an X-Wing. Because I love an X-Wing. Yeah, That's Star one Wars, of the most iconic, amazing ships, in my opinion. Star Wars has a large focus on fighter class, um, fighter class ships, and there's, boy, there's a lot of them. And, you know, there's a couple that I made the judgment call on of, this is larger than like an X-Wing or something like that, but still not quite big. It's still really like a one or two person ship, even though it's a little bit bigger. So I still disqualified that. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see what actually makes the list here. Before we get started digging into that, I'm going to hijack the podcast yet again, two weeks in a row with my own personal top 10 uh, side top 10 here for fun. This week's side list is uh, top 10 good ship names that I have uh, put together here. Uh, None of these overlap with my actual top 10, so I'll just crank through them here. Uh, Number 10, Gangplank Galleon from Donkey Kong Country. That's great. Good good music for that one as well. Yeah, good choice. Uh, Number 9, The Blackjack from Final Fantasy VI. It's an airship. It's it's a, it's named the Blackjack because the guy who uh, owns it, Setzer, is a gambler. Uh, number eight, the Dawn Treader from Narnia. Number seven, the Jolly Roger from Peter Pan. Captain Hook ship. Uh, number six, the Black Pearl from Pirates of the Caribbean. Number five, the aforementioned Hispaniola from Treasure Island. Just a fun word to say. Number four, Starfare's Gem from the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, The Unbeliever. Uh, number three, The Obra Din from the video game Return of the Obra Din. Number two, The Moldy Crow from the video game Star Wars Dark Forces. Hmm. And number also one. in the board game Outer Rim. That's true. It's in the board game Outer Rim, which we may have played recently. Uh, and number one, from Halo, the UNSC Pillar of Autumn. Because, man, that's a cool name. That's such a cool name for a ship. It is a very cool name for a ship. I will concede that. So, I, without going... Because you have a separate list for your honorable mentions, I'm assuming? 
Yes. Right? Okay, then I've got two, actually, that I, based on you telling me that you had a cool names list, I have two that are not honorable mentions, but are part of my cool names list. Uh, One of them, in no particular order, the Orca from Jaws, because an Orca is a type of mammal that attacks and kills sharks, which I thought was a very clever name for that, for for the boat in Jaws. Uh, or the ship, I guess. And then the Inferno, which is from the Goonies. I did not realize that One-Eyed Willie's ship was named the Inferno. It was mm-hmm. only through the research of this that I realized it. And while the ship itself has a bunch of gold and is very cool as an adventure quest grail type thing, it really is an unremarkable ship, but has an awesome name. The Inferno. Pretty good. A lot of good ship names out there, as it turns out. All right, well, why don't we jump into... uh, Well, okay, we forgot to mention, uh, we had an impartial third party, as usual, go over our list, and it turns out we do have a duplicate in the top five, so this week we'll be talking in detail about our top sixes. So, Scott, with that in mind, why don't we get started with your top six? Oh, you're going to love this. My number six, and and I say you're going to love it because, as chance would have it, it is the UNSC Pillar of Autumn from (laughs) Halo. (laughs) I I thought this might make your list. Okay, yeah, I mean, it's... How could it not make the list? This this is an awesome ship. I think it's a cooler name than it is a ship. Oh, well, I, I think in particular the resiliency of the ship stands out to me but let, let me go through this here real quick so the the UNSC or which is the United Nations Space Command I believe Pillar Unsk. of Autumn yes the Unsk Pillar of Autumn from Halo franchise sometimes referred to as the Autumn or the Pillar less frequently the Pillar more often the Autumn it has a hull classification symbol C709. It is a Halcyon class light cruiser in the UNSC Navy. Before we before we proceed here, I just want to mention talking about ship classes for me is very cool. I just like the whole concept of like it is a this class ship. Just a cool Halcyon class ship. It's just a cool thing to say. It is a very cool thing to say, and I believe I've noted what each of these ships are in my list yeah uh, me, just... me as well when it when it applies yeah i mean this this topic before i really dig into the details of this one this topic we could go super deep on oh and, yeah absolutely i mean there's so many different classifications i i feel like you and i could probably just nerd out on a conversation of fictional ships for hours probably mm. like in, amongst friends just you know bsing hanging out it's it's weird because that is it's such a nerdy thing to say some real nerd (laughs) shit that's the real that's some deep nerd it's okay i'm i'm proud so i i will mention that prior to the fall of reach the pillar of autumn was selected to support operation red flag a spartan 2 mission to capture covenant leaders and during multiple battles i think installation four uh, Installation 04 was one of the more famous ones. It defeated four separate Covenant ships despite already being damaged. So in its uh, specs here, we have one Mark II light coil. We have four Shiva-class nuclear missiles. 
mounting 30 megaton havoc warheads. I mean, that's some that's some monstrous firepower. We have 32 M58 Archer missile pods, 18 M910 Rampart point defense guns, 8 Mark 33 Spitfire naval coil gun batteries, and 6 M66 Sentry autocannon turrets. That's a lot of stuff. That's, I mean, as far as the, the Spartans being able to utilize some of this stuff to really take down the Covenant, I mean, that's, that's amazing. It wasn't even the best ship, right? I mean, the, the ship itself has a cool name, mm-hmm. was super resilient in battles, but, like I said, not necessarily the uh, most powerful in the universe. Well, sure. And I, and I think it's important to clarify here. We're not just going for what's the most powerful ship that lo- would make this list look really different. I think a lot of what we're looking for is what makes the ship unique? What makes this ship especially cool and interesting? 100%. And beyond the uh, initial armaments there, we've got other complements and crew. You've got longsword fighters, pelicans, albatross, scorpions, warthogs, rhinos, bumblebees, all the different vehicles that you've known to or grown to know and love in the halo franchise i mean it has several of each of them and Bunge, uh, bungee likes their am, animal names for vehicles i know it's great it's great it also has uh about a thousand naval personnel 800 marines uh 400 odsts and the 79th infantry battalion army personnel which is who knows how many um, as well as falcons so yeah, that's uh it's quite an impressive ship and as far as the the reach did you play Halo Reach? Yes. Okay. What were your thoughts on Reach itself compared to some of the other games specifically not the multiplayer gameplay but the storyline and some of the one player or like two player co-op story modes? I'm going to say maybe a bit of a hot take here. I think Reach is probably the worst campaign that Bungie put out. Really? Yeah. I I think I like every other one of the Bungie Halo games better. I've not played any of the non-Bungie campaigns, so anything Halo 4 onwards I've not gone through. Right. Uh, But, you know, 3, I mean, 3's the best one, because come on. Uh, Okay, Um, fair enough. Uh I, I really like two, but that's probably just because I played it so Two is good, but it's mean. It's hard, yeah. especially if you've ever played in some of the other, like the higher level difficulties yeah. on it. it I, I, did oh a, I did a co-op run of on Legendary with my friend Chris and those, uh, those jackals of two? will. Of two, oh yeah. And that they will one shot you over and over again. And it is 100%. It, it, it's like, okay, I'm done dying. Let's take a 15 minute break and come back to this because, <laughs> yeah, that that was tough, but so worthwhile once it was done okay well i i digress I, i'll just point out that the the ship the autumn plays a significant role in the battle the battles that occurred during that last uh that game and i think there are complementary pieces of other literature to really dive into the details of what it is that the, the the pillar of autumn contributed to the battles and some of those are pretty interesting i i would not say i've delved a lot into those 
pieces, uh, but I have read some of the highlights and, and I gotta say it just enhances what I already know about the, the halo universe and, and the pillar of autumn in this case. And, and it just makes me like it even more. So I'm, I'm happy to include this on my list. Not, not the most remarkable ship, but a very cool ship, uh, a very resilient ship, like I've said several times. And it just, to me, it stands out as, as one that is important to that universe. So that's why I put it as my number six. All right. Well, what about you? What, what do you got for name. your number six? I'll say Pillar of Autumn. What a cool name. Bungie's good at naming stuff. Uh, my number six is uh, another another sci-fi franchise, this time uh, a movie, originally a movie franchise. This is the UCSS Nostromo from Alien, the original Alien. Hmm. This is a Lockmart CM88B Bison M-Class Starfreighter. Uh, it is originally captained by Arthur Dallas. Uh, and oh well, I guess he's the only captain we ever know of, really, on um, of the ship in in the fiction, to my knowledge. Uh, is owned by the Wayland Utani Corporation, which is kind of the big mega corporation that runs everything in the Alien universe. Um, it's basically a big space tugboat. Um, it, it, it's a freighter, but you know, kind of most freighters are designed to internally carry cargo. Uh, the the Nostromo is designed to uh attach two larger loads and then pull them along through space instead of storing it inside in the movie it's towing a larger uh a large like metal refinery uh ships for 334 meters long so it's pretty pretty big good size um one of the details i found that i thought was pretty hilarious is in the fiction it is supposed to it was built in 2000 uh, built in the year 2101 and it supposedly costs $42 million to build, which is very funny given million. how it, how much like that kind of money is spent on like a single fighter jet you know, for the U.S. military nowadays in 2023 dollars. Yeah, so, wow. 2101 dollars. They, they, built, they built the Nostromo on the cheap, I guess. Uh, it's capable of FTL, but it's not really... FTL is faster than light. We're gonna probably gonna end up using that term a lot in this uh, mm-hmm. in this episode, uh, but not really in the terms of most sci-fi. So a lot of like Star Wars, Star Trek kind of things, you know, they 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 jump to warp speed or whatever, and then they're either there instantly or it like takes a takes a couple hours or whatever to get to. Um, they have they can exceed the speed of light, but it takes uh, still takes a very long time to get places. Reaching other stars take months, and so the crew have. Uh, long-term sleep chambers they're in for the journey i think the the trip they're on in the movie alien is listed as eight months so they're supposed to be sleeping through that entire time uh that's a, that's a nice little nap yeah for sure uh the, the uh one of the details about that is i find fun is the computer system which they have to go into this weird little chamber to access the computer that only the um generally only the captain is allowed into um, to interface with the com- the computer, which is called Mother, which is a little, little weird. Hmm. So the big thing about the Nostromo that I think really makes it special is it feels like a working ship. It's dirty. It's unfriendly. It, it, it you know uncaring for life. It's built for its its purpose with no thought for comfort. Really, 
it's a big space semi truck or tugboat that's crewed by space truckers. That's the whole feel of this thing. Uh, the whole and like the crew and the um, in the movie and everything has like a very blue collar feel. Uh, so it's, I, I think it's pretty unique from certainly for its time. Whereas a lot of other sci-fi is a lot more like sleek futuristic stuff. The Nostromo is just right. this big, it's a big space truck, basically. Uh, the ship itself was named for the main character of the 1904 Joseph Conrad novel, Nostromo. And uh, one other detail I just I thought was fun is the main shooting model they used for parts of that movie that was 12 feet long. <laughs> just a massive model it could only be moved with a forklift and so there's mm. a spot in on the back of the model that they didn't use for shots that has slots for the forklift forks so they could lift it around lift it and move it around which i think is kind of fun that's a, that's a of of the research i was doing on uh digging into these different ships and everything of the ones that were used for filming um that actually had models built and were not just CGI, some of these older ones. That is far and away the biggest of the models of anything that I found out about. So twelve feet's pretty big. How much did you say that that one weighed, the twelve foot model? Uh I did not say because I don't know. Okay. I just well had to be lifted by forklift. I mean it had to pretty big. Pretty incredible. Pretty heavy, I imagine. The the wiki hmm. page says the actual Nostromo weighed sixty three thousand metric tons. But I imagine the model did not weigh that much. We've got forklifts that can weigh or lift that much. That's that's incredible. Yeah, it's a good forklift. Does it not tip over? Hmm. It weighs equally as much on the opposing side. It's a heavy forklift. Yeah, it's anchored, basically. All right, but huh. yeah, that's my number six, the Nostromo from Alien. It's a good addition. It's, it's a good, good name too. I I think, just in general. Right? I mean, it's kind of a cool name. Yeah. Nostromo. It's a, it's a, good, it's a good spooky ship, because Alien no more of that horror movie, and there's a lot of dark nooks and crannies and weird rooms with chains and steam and stuff that the alien uses to scurry around. So, yeah, good spooky ship, but not the spookiest on my list. Ooh. Well, we should definitely go to my number five, then. Okay. Because I also have a spooky ship on my list. All right. Number five, the Flying Dutchman from Pirates of the Caribbean. Wow, this is, I'm going to say, pseudo-duplicate. Okay, fair enough. I, I uh, distinctly I- indicated that this was the one from Pirates of the Caribbean because I think it's probably the one that most people are familiar with. I'm also going to, I'm not going to refer to the one from SpongeBob, which is more of just a Spanish-style galleon, kind of a basic ship, but... Uh, I also do allude to some of the lore, the supernatural lore of the ship itself in, I guess, you can call it real life, but obviously it's not a real ship, so pseudo-duplicate, I guess. You probably have it from a different franchise. uh, My number five is also the Flying Dutchman, but abstracted to just the mythological Flying Dutchman. Okay, so... I mean, roughly, they are the same. Uh, okay, let me let me rephrase this. Because I am indicating that it's the one from Pirates of the Caribbean. Because that's the one that I visually have the most knowledge of. But okay. I, I do include several legends and lore details here. So it's kind of funny that we have number five being the same. Yeah, uh, I, I, we usually don't have our duplicate the same number. Right. 
well that that makes things a little bit easier uh so i guess let me let me indicate that it is a supernatural ghost ship manned mm-hmm. by davy jones and his crew so the prow of the ship which is the front of the ship that is above water because not everyone's familiar with the terminology the prow of the ship resembled a fanged mouth and featured a carved figurehead that resembled the grim reaper and his scythe while the uncorrupted prow looked like a head of a crocodile or like a barracuda with wooden spikes which had razor sharp teeth and and no figurehead so i mean that that in itself, the look of it is amazing. It's a it's very dramatic ship. Design. Menacing. So menacing. Yes. Amazing ship. And when it first appeared in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and it comes out from under the water, which... The second one, I believe, right? That's right. Yeah, I believe so. Uh, which its, its entrance was awesome. And just seeing the, the prow break the water like that and and look like against like it's silhouetted figure against the the sky it looked really really dark and kind of creepy and i thought that was really really cool so that was the main reason why i indicated pirates of the caribbean here so additional details though from the flying dutchman it weighed 420 tons and was 170 feet long stern to bow it was armed with 46 cannons, not including two triple-barreled chase guns, and the Dutchman was considered to be the fastest ship both on and beneath the sea, which I guess makes it a submarine, technically, but not it really. It does submerge. It does, and it yeah, it continues to operate while submerged. And I, I believe the only ship that was able to outrun it was, as already alluded to, the Black Pearl. But it was only because the Black Pearl had more favorable winds in the direction that they were heading. Otherwise, the Dutchman is, in fact, faster. And the Dutchman's main armament, which I mentioned, the, the 20 36-pound cannons and the 18-24-pound cannons, supplemented by three-pounders on the quarterdeck and forecastle, making her capable of delivering a 588-pound broadside which is an incredible amount of firepower for one of those early type ships and this uh that that gave them an advantage in multiple occasions they were destructive if not fatal and you know they they showed their power over several other ships uh, and then beyond that it also carries two large triple rotating bow chasers which is also kind of incredible so Pretty pretty cool, pretty well-armed ship for the, the time period, and I've got a few more things on here on Legends and Lore, but since you've also got that on your list, why don't you uh, fill us in a little bit on some of the additional Legends and Lore that make this such a significant ship? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm definitely going for more of the historical angle here. Um, so the Legends of the Flying Dutchman most likely originated from 17th century Dutch East India com- uh, trading company dominance. Definitely. Uh, the oldest documented version of the legend is from the late 18th century. Uh, supposed sightings continued through the 19th and 20th centuries, though. According to most versions of the legend, the Dutchman is a ghost ship that's doomed to sail the seven seas for all eternity, never able to make port. Uh, the first text we have about it is from 1790, written by a John MacDonald. Uh, the quote here says, 
The weather was so stormy that the sailors said they saw the Flying Dutchman. The common story is that this Dutchman came to the Cape in distress of weather and wanted to get into harbor, but could not get a pilot to conduct her and was lost. And that ever since, in very bad weather, her vision appears. Mm. Uh, there's also, notably, a uh, poem from Sir Walter Scott uh, in 1812. That is the first reference to the Flying Dutchman as specifically a pirate ship. Uh, part of the legend is associated with the 17th century Dutch captain Bernard, boy, don't not sure how you say this name, Bernard Fock, F-O-K-K-E? Sure. Folk, Fock, sure. Let's um, go Fock. Uh, apparently, he regularly sailed between the Netherlands and Java and made the ships so quickly that some people thought he was in league with the devil. Hmm. Just the, sounds like he was good at what he did. Yeah, but maybe too good. What if he... How does he? How is he so fast? Well, the devil made him do it. Yeah, of course. Uh, the Dutchman has been featured dozens of times in various fictional works, poems. There's an opera by Wagner from 1843. Um, there's a book series by one Brian Jakes, who you may be more familiar with from the Redwall books. Uh, there's an episode of the 60s Spider-Man cartoon where the Flying Dutchman appears as an illusion created by Mysterio. Uh, your, your your most famous representations nowadays are the Pirates for Pirates of the Caribbean version, which we talked about, and then the character from SpongeBob. Uh, the one detail. in SpongeBob also has a scent department, which kind of makes people discouraged from using that one. So that's one of the reasons why I didn't include that particular yeah. rendition. But sorry, your last detail. La- last real detail here is um, the. The guess about what the most likely explanation is for this legend happening is there's this um, effect called a Fata Morgana, which is a type of mirage seen on the horizon that's caused by light bending when it passes through layers of air that have different temperatures, so that mm-hmm. the air itself basically forms a refracting lens. You can look up images on this uh, of this online, and it creates like kind of like these weird blocky spots uh, images off in the distance. Uh, which is interesting looking. You could definitely see there's, I think like the Wikipedia page has like an animated GIF of it. Uh, and you can definitely see how someone might mistake that for a ship off in the distance. And I believe it was a, a similar effect, but kind of the opposite that led to the demise of the Titanic, where the, the icebergs were miraged in a way, right, on the horizon. But because of the way that the light or the the was reflecting off the moon, or I think it was at night, and the the distance and the humidity and the I, there were a whole bunch of little factors, but it created a a way in which it basically hid the icebergs. And so, even with the equipment of the time, the best equipment of the time, there's no way they could have seen that. Sure. I'm gonna add. A little bit of additional detail here, um, specifically the one in the Pirates of the Caribbean, that legend and lore, right? The Flying Dutchman was given to, was given, right, to Davy Jones mm-hmm. by his love, the sea goddess Calypso, who gave Jones the duty of ferrying the souls who died at, the, at sea into the next world. And after 10 years, Jones would be free to come ashore to be with Calypso. But whenever he came ashore, Calypso was nowhere to be found. And that ultimately resulted in Jones carving out his own heart and locking it in the dead man's chest. 
and Jones abandoned his his duty, instead wreaking havoc on the seas and unleashing the Kraken upon many vessels. He also preyed on wayward sailors lost at sea who wished to avoid death and final judgment, press-ganging them into his crew and eventually becoming part of the Dutchman himself itself. So part of the, the ship, part of the crew. That's right, part of the crew, part of the ship. It's a uh, it's one of those things where I guess a love story gone wrong and I you know, a little bit of an older movie. So I I guess I won't spoil it, but there there's a an attempted redemption arc for those who haven't seen it. I mean, I enjoyed it. It's not not the most amazing movie in the world, but as far as the Pirates movies, it's, it's one of the better ones. So Fun fact, uh the 10-year cycle curse thing, um, that element is actually from the Wagner opera. Ah. That, that's okay. where that portion of it originates. That's interesting. I did mm-hmm. not know that. And the other thing that's interesting about this one, the crew becomes... How do, how do you say it? When they become part of the ship, they look like they've been left to rot almost right they've got they become monstrous let's say yeah monstrous in in appearance in some cases or they just like barnacles start adhering to their face they just become mm-hmm. like well worn and and sea torn i guess I don't, I don't know what the proper word is here but weathered it, weathered yeah sure in the way that worn. in the way that ships become right so and davy they, jones himself has a cthulhu tentacle face yeah, that's true. So the the crew, though, gains those attributes of looking weathered and worn, but so does the rest of the ship. And even when the curse is lifted, spoilers, no, maybe not, the the ship retains that ability, even though the crew does not. So the, the ship continues to look extremely worn and uh, like it's been at sea for hundreds of years. So pretty cool ship the design is amazing it's one of the fastest which makes it remarkable in that sense it's pretty well armed especially for ones at the time and then the legends and lore surrounding it make it just kind of a unique ship and and i think that's very cool so that was why i've had it as my number five and it's uh... apparently you agree with me because you had it as your number five yeah i think the pirates version is a very cool version of it but i've always found the the legends and folklore around the Flying Dutchman itself as interesting and uh, just, you know, interesting how that propagates and, and spreads just most likely based on just weird physics and how light works. Right. So. Well, with that being said, since we kind of uh, agreed on that one, why don't we jump to your number four and then maybe we do mine before a break? Sounds good. Uh, my number four is, I'm willing to wager the most ridiculous entry on either of our lists. Ooh. I'm talking about Outer Haven from Metal Gear Solid 4. This is a uh, Karikion-class submersible battleship. Uh, submersible? Another submarine. Yep, we had another submarine in here. Um, this one, more of an actual submarine. Uh, it was created by Liquid Ocelot. Now, before we really dig into this, um, I'm going to have to get into some weird Metal Gear story details here because uh, uh, 
that's a key element of the ship that makes it special that uh, unless I explain all this stuff, you're not going to understand why it's special. Uh, so I guess if you're particularly averse to spoilers for Metal Gears 1, 2, and 4, uh, skip this Which one, are I guess. how old at this point? Uh, one's from 98, two's from 2003, I think, right around there, 2002. And then four is 2008, I want to say, 2009. That's old enough, like that. I think. I think you're okay, but... So, uh, the main character of Metal Gear Solid is... Uh, a series is Solid Snake. Maybe may familiar. Um, uh, an opponent that he faces in Metal Gear Solid 1 is Revolver Ocelot, who's a Russian Special Forces agent who worked with Solid Snake's clone brother, Liquid Snake. Um, at the end of Revolver Metal- Ocelot, side note, awesome mm-hmm. name. Just oh yeah, awesome. Metal, Gear, Metal Gear is full of extremely cool names. Uh, so, so the 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 kind of terrorist forces that are that are the antagonists of Metal Gear Solid One are led by Liquid Snake, like I said, Solid Snake's clone brother. Um, he dies at the end of the first game, um, and uh, Revolver Ocelot loses an arm. And Metal Gear Solid Two, you find out that. He's had Liquid Revolver also has had one of Liquid Snake's arms grafted onto his own body in place of his own, and then is subsequently taken over by the spirit of Liquid Snake. So that's how he becomes Liquid Ocelot, is he's like a, a merging of these bodies and personalities. Metal Gear is ridiculous. It, it um, sounds a lot like uh, in, in Spider-Man, the way Venom kind of takes over. Yeah, sure. Um, similar it uh so so there the other important thing to note um there's a whole clone program of uh like solid snake and liquid snake and their brother solidus snake are clones of the legendary soldier big boss uh, who you play as in the other metal gear solid games that are not one two and four um so if you're not familiar with what a metal gear is it's basically a walking nuclear tank uh, kind of a mech sort of situation. Um, the Outer Haven itself is a modified arsenal gear, which is a nuclear submarine using Metal Gear tech. Um, the Outer Haven is used as a mobile base and fortress for Liquid Ocelot's private military company, PMC, Outer he- Outer Heaven, not to be confused with Outer Haven, the name of the ship. Mm-hmm. Um, it, ha- it is 640 meters long uh, with a top speed of 40 knots. It's powered by a cold fusion nuclear reactor, and it has uh, an octo camo hull that allows it to camouflage. Most notably, the thing that makes this ship the most special is the hull of the ship features a Mount Rushmore of Big Boss, Solid Snake, Liquid Snake, and Solidus Snake. <laughs> of just a giant Mount Rushmore of their four faces in metal on the side of this ship. It is incredible. Uh, just obviously very goofy, but just an incredible moment in that game when you see it come up and it reveals, come out of the water and it reveals that. It's like, oh my god, what did they do? Um, handful of other details here. Um, it's obviously nuclear capable because why wouldn't it be? Um, it can launch well, yeah. nukes. It launches its nuclear missiles from a rail gun. It's also protected by a number of smaller Metal Gear tech-based robots called Geckos, 
as well as Metal Gear Rays, which are kind of um, amphibious Metal Gear tanks. The purpose of this, other than being a, a base for the uh, for the PMC, is it carries one of the Patriots, which is one of the AIs that runs the entire world in the Metal Gear universe. Um, accessing the AI requires passing through a tunnel of microwaves. Now, I don't mean a tunnel of actual appliance microwaves. There's microwave emitters in the tunnel designed to fry anyone who tries to get through the tunnel. Hmm. This is a very cool ship and a very silly ship, but it's really fun and I love it. It's kind of ridiculous, yeah. It really is, but I I really love it. A lot of ridiculous details. Yeah. About Rushmore. About Rushmore on a ship. I guarantee you none of the other ships on either of our lists have that on it. No, but can you imagine in like a a Star Trek universe having like a a Kirk Mount Rushmore <laughs> head next to a Picard next to right? I mean, okay, Kirk next, Picard, next Cisco to Spock. Janeway. Yeah, right. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Throw Spock up there. Why not? But but make Spock slightly smaller just to just to see if he knows. You got to appease Shatner. Yeah. Well, otherwise you won't go for it. Right. That's funny. But yeah, my number four, Outer Haven. Fun ship. Very silly. It's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. What do you you got for your number four? Number four. Okay, so speaking of Star Trek, the USS Enterprise, specifically the NCC-1701-D or Enterprise D, which is the one that is under the command of Jean-Luc Picard. And this is a galaxy-class Federation starship in Star Trek The Next Generation. I'm going to stop you right now. This is the actual duplicate on our list. Aha! Interesting. Uh, Our third party did not count the Flying Dutchmans as duplicates because they are they are from different. a different property. So okay, fair enough. I I I will I will credit them with that. Um, the Enterprise NCC one seven zero one D specifically is my number one. Ha. Okay. Well, I, I I guess I get it. I mean, let me let me talk through some of the details I have here, and then you can feel free to add some more. And and I'm glad that you also agree that this is in fact the best variation of the Enterprise. Oh, for sure. So, uh, whereas Captain Kirk led a five-year mission, the new crew for this one would be outfitted for a mission of at least 10 years. So, in order to sustain the journey, the new vessel would be twice as long, eight times the volume, and include the crew's families. So, some of the... Well, I'll let you talk through all the features of this one. Maybe that'll be a little bit better here. But uh, some of the things that I found interesting about the the actual Enterprise, and one of the reasons that it's on this list. Uh, In the year 2367, an average day aboard the ship recorded by Lieutenant Commander Data included four birthdays, two personnel transfers, two chess tournaments, a secondary school play, four promotions, and at least one birth. as an average day. So, massive. I mean, this thing's huge. It's uh, it, it it held a crew of up to, of uh, usually around a thousand people, mm-hmm. um, but also their families at times up to six thousand total people of the ship. Yeah, the the that's why the Enterprise had 
five daycare centers, and at least seven classrooms. So the uh, the hangout area of the ship, 10 forward, right, located at the extreme forward of deck 10 in the saucer section, was the center of the ship's social activity. Nearly everyone on board passed through the lounge at one time or another. Uh, and I think, you know, that's that shows up in a few of the episodes. And then the hollow decks located on deck 10 and 12 also provided entertainment for the crew. Um, and then also note here that the saucer can be separated from the rest yeah. of the vessel. Yeah. Which is a very cool feature. And it's got a battle bridge on the not saucer portion. That That's right. To. Yeah. Oh, they that leave, was they good... leave the civilians on the on the saucer section. I know. That was an incredible episode. Okay. Anyway. Oh, they, can... do, they do that a few times. Right. Well, I'm one in particular that I'm thinking of. But we can uh, jump into if you want to go through some of the armaments that it has. Or maybe if you've got... Uh, I had some notes here on the different warp speeds that it generally achieves. Uh, you know, some of the things about the shields. I, I don't know what kind of details you have that maybe you want to fill in some of the gaps here. Yeah, sure. Um, so it's 641 meters long. Uh, it is armed with a whole bunch of stuff. I didn't grab all the specific numbers on this thing because there's just a lot of stuff. Uh, it's got phaser arrays. It's got photon torpedo tubes. It's got antimatter mines. You know, it's got the it's got the shielding. This is a shield type of uh, spaceship, which not all sci-fi. We're gonna hear from some not shield type spaceships in mm-hmm. on my list at another point. Um, it's got a deflector dish that's primarily designed to um, kind of move larger objects out of the way of the ship, but also at times it is uh, kind of refitted and redesigned to be used as a highly powerful energy weapon. Um, so cool. Uh, yeah, you know, some of the, some of the main details there, I'll pass it back to you for some of your stuff before I get into some of my other details. Yeah. So I, I did have notes here on the warp speeds. It it normally, uh, the initial average cruise velocity of the ship is warp six. The theoretical achievable velocity with extreme risk though, is warp 9.8, but they were able to sustain for at least a few hours a warp 9.6 speed uh and i can't remember the context of what was going on at that point but it it was extremely fast and you know data's running calculations and trying to figure out how we can do this and that was uh uh one of the features i thought were pretty incredible about this i mean that that is extremely fast it's yeah well and 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 one of the key elements to to talk about when we're talking warp speeds in star trek is the details on that are somewhat fuzzy and not consistent throughout the various shows. Um, you know, warp, you know, you kind of have your progressing of warp one up through warp nine, you know, warp one being light speed. Warp right. nine is uh, about 1,516 times the speed of light, but it's a logarithmic scale at this point. So like as you approach warp 10, it gets dramatically faster and faster and faster um, with warp 10 itself being theoretically infinite speed. Hmm. No, no spoilers for the rest of my list. That's uh-huh. uh, an interesting thought. I see. But yeah, but uh... I don't have uh, too many other details here other than the fact that the next generation, I think, is my favorite Star Trek. So it's oh, agreed. It, it was easy for me to select this one as uh, the winner, but just mainly because of my familiarity with it as a vessel, as opposed to 
some of the other iterations where I'm much less familiar. Sure. Uh, some of the other stuff I have to mention here, um, the computer voice on uh, Next Generation through the 90s Star Trek shows. Um, so this isn't completely unique to the Enterprise D specifically, but it was introduced here. Um, the computer voice is voiced by Majel Barrett, uh, who was uh, who played Nurse Chapel on the original um, series and uh, later married Gene Roddenberry, creator of Star Trek. Um, in my opinion, the greatest computer voice in sci-fi ever. It's a big fan. Uh, I also want to call out idea for a list computer voices. Yeah. I also want to call out the ambient engine sound of the enterprise as just one of the best sound effects in all of star uh, in all of sci-fi. Um, just a really good background sound that they have present, um, in, in most of the scenes where they're on the ship. Um, people have put that out and there's like 24 hour loops of that on YouTube that you could just listen to and have in your house to make it sound like you're on the enterprise. It's a good sound. It's a good sound. I feel like we should have that playing in the background when we're playing video games and stuff. Like, or maybe board games. I don't know. It's just kind of cool. It's a good sound. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to snip out a little bit of that sound for this. Uh, the last few details here, we did not mention that the Enterprise for Enterprise D for almost its entire run is commanded by Jean-Luc Picard, one, uh, I would say the best Star Trek character. Uh, oh, not even just the best. Okay. So the best character of all in Star Trek. Yes. Wow. Okay. In my opinion. Um, hmm. their primary shooting model, um, at the start of the show was six feet long. But um, starting in season three, they made a four foot long model, and uh, both of those are pretty cool. Uh, you know, six feet. You know, not quite the not quite the twelve feet of the Nostromo, but uh, six feet still that's quite big. Uh, that sold for I believe over five hundred thousand dollars at auction to some fan. That six foot one, so that would be cool to have. Uh, Where and would then, you put that? If Just I don't know, park it's it outside. Cool. It's cool. Uh, <laughs> The uh, also, if you really want to get into the nitty gritty details of the Enterprise, they did in the 90s publish the Enterprise technical manual that has detailed blueprints of the entire ship. So, yeah, that's out there. You can go look at, you know, learn all the details of the Enterprise D uh, to your heart's content. So I, I was, in fact, scrolling through some of the blueprints during my. It's a good book. Uh, the technical manual, right? I mean, that's like it, I it's all online. You can find it in most of right. the wikis and stuff. So it's. I've never was, gotten to go through a physical copy, but there's the but that's out there and you can look at it and it's cool. It's interesting. Well, yeah, the Enterprise D, the Good greatest fictional uh, ship of all me. time. We're all done. Well, whoa, whoa. All right. Hold your horses, because I've got three more that I chose to put ahead of this that I, I think we're going to have to at least go through so that you can refute poorly and I can take supreme position here. We'll see. But before that, why don't we take a break? Yeah, I guess I could use a break. I'm tired of these people. Well, uh, we'll be right back, folks. Stick around with our, I guess, my number two and three and Scott's one through three. Sounds good. See you in a few.
Hey there, hope you're enjoying the show so far. But if you have comments or would like to reach out to us with show ideas, or maybe you'd like to guests appear on the show, I don't know. Maybe we're interested in that. Maybe not. We'll see. The Twitter for our show is at Stupid Sequence, or you can email us at stupidsequence at gmail.com. We are interested to hear from you, so if you have something to say, no matter how small, please take the time and reach out. We'll talk again soon. Now, back to my number three. Okay, so for my number three, I have my Star Wars entry. Interesting. And it is Supremacy, also known as Snoke's Boudoir. This is... Really? That's what you went with? So... I debated on a few different Star Wars ships. Ultimately, there's a lot of good ones. There are a lot of good ones. This one really stood out to me. I, I will say that in my original viewing of the the sequels, it was not one that stood out to me. Um, but in reviewing and researching after the fact, I'm like, you know what? This one actually this is kind of a badass ship. Like, and, and it's, it's not huge. It's not massive. It is gargantuan. Yeah. It's a, a, just a, an insanely large ship. So a couple things about this one in particular, it is the only mega class star dreadnought. And it served as the flagship of Supreme leader Snoke and the mobile capital of the First Order, which I think is, it's big enough to be a city, not just a small city either, it's a massive city, right? Oh yeah, this is, this is the largest ship on either of our lists that we've mentioned so far by, I want to say, a factor of... Well, let me just say this, it has a 60-kilometer wingspan mm-hmm. and a 13-kilometer length. It is the largest capital ship in galactic history. So from that alone, this, that's pretty significant. Beyond the general size, right? It has 32 sublight engines and a very powerful hyperdrive. Six fusion reactors uh, complexes at the starboard, which give it both a little bit of redundancy, but also increase its damage resistance. It's large enough to dock eight resurgent class star destroyers, six external and two of them internally. So it has a bay, two bays large enough to house one of the star destroyers. And it crewed a total of over 2.225 million personnel. Including that's a lot of that's a lot of fascists. Yeah, so many and their families. You know, officers, stormtroopers, gunners, engineers, factory workers, tech specialists, comms staff. I mean, it's it's a lot. It's a lot of people. But more specifically, it also has ten military staging areas, each of which could accommodate thirty six thousand stormtroopers, and it also carried production lines, shipyards army training grounds, and even R&D labs, and it had eight droid manufacturing facilities. 
couple other details here. The Supremacy also acted as one of the premier research labs and factories in the First Order, possessing industrial capabilities rivaling the most productive worlds under the regime's control. So it's, it's got these armored deck, uh, decks that are housed um, departments that, reserved, uh, that are specifically for the conception, research, and approval of new weapons and technology. And it also housed the raw materials that they needed for that, as well as eight foundries and an asteroid mining complex for harvesting additional raw materials from the asteroid fields, uh, in addition to the, the production lines. So, I mean, that's that in and of itself, it, it's a ultra sustainable ship. At no point were they worried about supply for this ship. It, it is self-sustaining, 100%. And it also possessed a detention center near the stern, a commons area, an assembly hall, which could accommodate 200,000 personnel in itself, as well as at least 346 laundry rooms. And the majority of the crew quarters were placed within the various central city blocks of the ship. So in addition, the vessel also possessed thousands of heavy turbo, heavy turbo lasers, anti-ship missile batteries, heavy ion cannons, and tractor beam projectors. And the bow of the ship possessed numerous long-range heavy turbo laser towers, and only the Death Stars and Starkiller base rivaled its power, which I think are arguably not ships. They are bases. I would agree. So eliminating them from contention of this list, but for, them to, for this to have the same level of power as something that is considered a base while also being a mobile ship and mobile city, I think is incredible. Uh, and its communication complex monitored the, the hollow net traffic throughout the entire galaxy, and it could identify trends and weaknesses that the First Order could find and exploit. So pretty incredible, some of the, the things that it has here. Um, I think for me, for this to be the one on that I chose from the the Star Wars universe to be on this list, it, it just boils down to the sheer size and the overall logistics that it would take to create and man a ship this size is incredible. And and so the that alone kind of puts me at in a little bit of an awestruck position. And despite some of the really cool ships out there in the Star Wars universe. This one, for me, kind of takes the cake. It's got so many additional features on it that, and, and other unique ships, and, I mean, it, it just, it, it's really cool. I, and I'm, I'm kind of blown away by the amount of stuff that is just packed into this thing that they were able to create. And even though it did meet its demise, uh, I think it was the Radis, right? Named after presumably General Radis. Um, the the Radis destroyed it, cut it in half. Uh, this uh, this still remains one of the coolest ships, and the fact that they were ma- able to make something so big and still functional, I think, is awesome. I uh, I think I'm going to save my thoughts on the supremacy specifically. For our final segment. Okay, fair enough. I look forward to discussing why you're wrong. It's certainly very big. Hmm. 
Let, letting a little, uh, letting a little bit through there. You know what? Well, let's save it then, because I got more to say. We'll but it. I'll I'll save it for the argument yeah. section. We'll save it. What do you we'll got for it. your number three, Josh? Uh, my number three is also my Star Wars entry. Mm. Weird how we're lining up on this one. Um, lining up while not line up and lining up. Interesting. Um, this is one of the most iconic ships of all time. This is the Millennium Falcon. Mm. Or Falcon. I think it's supposed to be Falcon. Mm. Millennium Falcon. Mm. Uh, I, I Falcon knew it. It's a modified Corellian YT 1300 freighter. Uh, you, and you when you say modified, when you say modified, I mean modified. This, in car terms, this is basically if your buddy that's really into cars took a box truck, kitted it out for high speed, used it for smuggling, but also strapped military weaponry onto it. <laughs> um, so it's a set, essentially like an episode of Pimp My Ride. But functional? Uh, no, no, because <laughs> the yeah, all the cars in Pimp My Ride were were basically scams and and fell apart moments later. No, but they they look so good on camera. Okay, sorry, yeah, I digress. Go ahead, silly show. Um, but yeah, it's got it's light speed capable. Of course, it's got dual quad laser cannons, missile tubes. The hull plating on the Falcon is literally welded on from an Imperial cruiser. Um, they, it's, it's literally just a whole ship that is just strapped together. They put all the coolest stuff they could find onto basically in Star Wars terms. What is a box truck? You know, basically kitted out to be a heavily armed, highly high speed smuggling vessel. But how fast can it do the Kessel run? It can do the Kessel run. Or, okay. Okay. So the line, the infamous line here is that um, Han Solo and Chewbacca made the castle run in 12 parsecs. Allegedly. Now, the, the, a parsec is a unit of distance, not a unit of time. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a light they, year. And not, so not one, they, sorry. It's a few. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. The, the movie Solo, a Star Wars story, takes steps to kind of retcon what that means specifically. And how the area around Kessel is this real um, dangerous area, and normally you want to go around it, but they uh, so it was less. It's less that they did the Kessel run in twelve parsecs, as in that's really fast. It was oh, you went through Kessel, you went through a dangerous route through here that took incredibly skillful flying. Uh, right. So that's that's more what that originally, what what that now has been retconned to mean, but it definitely. It's just that George Lucas didn't know what a parsec was when he wrote that line. No. Because George Lucas does not care about Star Wars lore in any way. <laughs> I, I will say, uh, just a minor correction here, though. It is 3.26 light years is one parsec is the, I guess, retconned distance. That sounds right. Uh, so the engines on the Falcon are essentially overclocked to make them faster. Uh, and and the Falcon is referred to multiple times in in universe as the fastest ship in the galaxy. Uh, it's got its deflector shields. It's got its sensor dish. You know, it's a, it's just an incredibly iconic design with the twin mandibles out front. Um, you know, you usually this has been uh, the the Falcon has changed hands a lot of different times. It was initially owned and outfitted by uh, one, well, actually not even the original owner, but. The one that we know well is Lando Calrissian, who eventually lost it in a Sabacc game to Han Solo. 
and then Han and, che- Han and Chewbacca are kind of the pilots for most of Star Wars, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you make you know you may ask you know well I thought you you weren't doing one or two person ships and you know Han and Solo are generally flying this you know by themselves. That's true. This is this is definitely a ship that is meant to be piloted by more people. You know, it, it has stations. It has the guns. It the, most of the times when we see the Falcon going around and doing things, it has other characters on it that are manning those other stations. So. You know, to perform at peak peak efficiency, this is more than a two person ship. It's just that a lot of the time it just has two people on it. So I think it I think it qualifies for the list. I I would agree with you uh, that it does in fact qualify, even though it is primarily two people. It is not intended to be so, and also the fact that this was my runner up. I guess you could say I have it in my honorable mentions sure. list. I. If I wasn't going to pick Supremacy, I was going to pick the Millennium Falcon. I would say, arguably, the most iconic sci-fi ship ever made. Certainly one of the most recognizable. Oh, for sure. I think if you just show a picture of the Millennium Falcon, even several people outside of the Star Wars universe who have barely scratched the surface of those movies would be able to say, yeah, that's the Millennium Falcon. Which is a great it's name, a very... by the way. The Millennium oh, yeah, Falcon. Absolutely. Like another great name. So cool. It's uh it's fun. It, I just I really like this ship. Someday I'm gonna buy that Lego set. Ultimate Collector's Edition. Mm. It's $850, which is too expensive for me to justify right now, but someday on the bucket list. What a cool ship. I love it. it I, I I'll 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 make a little bit of an argument here just for my personal vibes of why of of just a, even indicator of the moment when i realized the millennium falcon meant as much to me as it does is you know those prequel movies came out millennium falcon notably not in those and you know they've had a little bit of a revival since then but i would say for the most part Rome's of sith is okay the rest of those movies not very good if there's people out there who will disagree i would say overall the writing in those movies pretty bad dialogue pretty bad uh so and, and star wars was kind of for for mass audiences let's say kind of a dead franchise for a lot of years right and then disney eventually bought the rights from george lucas and we got those prequels and we heard that those movies were coming out and i thought there's no way these are going to be good those other ones were just not good there's no way they're going to be good I'm resigned to these movies being bad. And I was right about the last one. But uh, <laughs> you know, but they put that they first may be tra- they put that first trailer. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. They put out that first trailer for Force Awakens and there's that moment when the music plays and the Falcon swings into view and I watched that trailer and I was like, "They got me. Oh my god, they got me. I have to watch this movie. That's the Millennium Falcon. It's, it's the music and everything. I have to watch it now." And that's the single moment in that um in that movie that like re in that trailer anyway that like resold me on star wars as a franchise again i saw that and i was like i have to i'm in i'm in i have to see this fair enough i i would say the prequels are questionable sure but the memes from the prequels are fantastic i i love the online Agreed. memes for Agreed. those i 
there there is there is gold to be found in those hills for sure. I think there's elements of the prequels that are very enjoyable. I would say overall, especially Attack of the Clones. They're not great movies. No, I, I could see that. Attack of the Clones is very bad. As much as we've talked on the podcast before about how much I hate Rise of Skywalker, um, Attack of the Clones is a worse movie. Hmm. It's the worst one. Yeah, it's it's pretty rough. And, you know, let's not get into the details of that right now. We're focusing he on ships. Sand. We're focusing on ships. Millennium Falcon. Pretty iconic, pretty amazing ship. Yep. I, I definitely see why you put it on there. But there's a reason I did not select it for mine, so I'm looking forward okay. to having that discussion. All right, we'll see. Well, why don't we jump over to your number two, then? Number two. My, my intention here was that it's from all depictions of this ship, which uh, are at least a three that, to my knowledge, maybe more. Hmm. The number two that I have is the Heart of Gold from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the ah, Galaxy. See. It is piloted and stolen by President, well, President at the time, Zaphod Beeblebrox, which is an awesome name. A lot, of, a lot of really good names, not just ship names, just names in general. And it is the most advanced starship in history. That's how it's kind of denoted. But I don't think that there's much in the way of classification of the ship. So I, at least not that I was able to find. So the, the ship itself. It's, it's pretty unique. Yeah, I mean, it's so this is where we kind of get into one of the things you said earlier about approaching infinite light speed, so to speak. All right, so let me let me back it up here. It, it it is a it is featured from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It is a ship that was created uh, as its origins. Uh, physicists had encountered repeated failures while trying to construct a machine which could generate the infinite improbability field, which was needed to flip a spaceship. So imagine, right, you're folding space time, right? Flip a spaceship across the mind-paralyzing distances between the farthest stars. So they're literally talking about folding it over, right? In, in order to instantly transport. And they mm -hmm. eventually announced that, not, that such a machine was virtually impossible. But then, one day, a student, and, and I love the way that these are written in the books, that he has such a sarcastic way of writing these things. So it, Douglas Adams, yeah, the author. Fantastic. So... Uh, a student who had been left to sweep up after a particularly unsuccessful party found himself reasoning in this way. He said, if such a, sh a machine is a virtual impossibility, it must have finite improbability. So all I have to do in order to make one is to work out how exactly improbable it is and feed that figure into the finite improbability generator give it a fresh cup of really hot tea, and turn it on. So he did that, and he managed to create the long-sought-after golden infinite improbability generator out of thin air. It just appeared. And unfortunately, shortly after he was awarded the Galactic Institute's Prize for Extreme Cleverness, he was also lynched by a ravaging mob of respectable physicists on the ground that he has become the one thing that they couldn't stand most of all, a smartass. <laughs> Uh, actually, it says a smart arse, but I, I thought that was great. But British, yeah, right. So the that's what makes the 
Heart of Gold a unique ship. It has, it's powered by the infinite improbability drive, which is a small golden box at the heart of the ship, hence its name. And this is, of course, powered by an infinite improbability generator. And as soon as the ship's drive reaches infinite improbability, it passes through every point in the universe, thus allowing the ship to go anywhere without, and they say here, all of that mucking about with hyperspace and whatnot. I love the way that they describe things. So, pretty, pretty badass abilities just for a ship in general. Um, in addition to the infinite improbability drive, which is one of the most iconic things about the ship, it also has a machine that dispenses babblefish. And the babblefish, for those who don't know, are uh, they allow for interplanetary and cross-cultural communications of all kinds, uh, both written and spoken, I believe. And it's it's like a tiny creature. Is it is it a, a creature or is it a uh, yeah, it's a, like creature. a robot. No, it's a creature. Yeah. Okay. So it goes in your ear and it allows you to just hear things hear hear how other languages are spoken. I guess it just is an auto translator. Um, in addition, it also has a lemon juicer, which is obviously important. I mean, who doesn't want to juice their lemons, but you know, no other fruits, just lemons. And then it also has a knife that cuts bread into toast. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. And hot knife, yeah, right? I, and I'm pretty sure that that exact knife exists now, uh, and people create created it based on the existence of it in this book. It was kind of a chicken and egg sort of thing, but I'm pretty sure it was created based on this. So, um, a couple other things about this, right? So, there's a lot of side effects of using the infinite improbability drive because it, it's such a ridiculous thing. But some of the side effects, which some are temporary, some are permanent, uh, it changes the environment and the morphological structure. It can cause hallucinations. And it also, it's the calling into being of large marine mammals. So some of the known effects are the creation and spontaneous upending of a million-gallon vat of custard, the transformation of a pair of guided nuclear missiles into a sperm whale and a bowl of petunias. Possibly my favorite moment in that right? book. Right, it's incredible. Redesigning the interior of the Heart of Gold. I think it's done that a few different times, uh, both in the book, the TV series, which I didn't really watch the TV series, I just know it exists, and then the, the movie, which I have seen. And then it, it, it turns Ford Prefect into a penguin. Uh, it also causes Arthur to temporarily lose three of his limbs. It transforms the desert world of Cacrafoon into an incredibly habitable oasis during a disaster area concert. And then it rids the people of Cacrafoon of their telepathy during the same concert and allows for the discovery of Magrathea by Zaphod Beeblebrock, which was the reason he stole it in the first place. He was looking for Magrathea. Uh, and then I think the first, during the first use of the infinite improbability drive, which was initiated by Zaphod, Beeblebrox, and Trillian on the Heart of Gold, the major consequence was rescuing Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect from open space. 
And that was, you know, right after they were trying to hitchhike, uh, after the earth was about to be destroyed and, and the probability of the two of that instance occurring was two to the power of 276,709 to one against. So pretty unlikely, but somehow they, they managed to, I would say it's infinitely improbable. And a few other events here that I'll just note for, for this, because it's the ship's infinite improbability drive being the unique thing about the ship and the thing that causes the entire world to be shaped kind of around it and therefore is relevant to the ship itself. A couple other events that occurred that took place at the time of abnormality. Lots of paper hats and party balloons appeared from a hole in the universe and then drifted off into space. Uh, a team of seven three-foot-high market analysts came from the hole and died from a combination of asphyxiation and surprise. Uh, 239,000 lightly fried eggs fell out of the hole and onto the famine-struck land of Pogril. I think it's po Pogril? In the Pancel system. And this caused the one surviving man of the Pogril tribe to die from cholesterol poisoning some weeks later. <laughs> kind of ironic. Arthur and Ford appeared to be at the seafront sea at Southend, Essex, UK, and were passed by a man with five heads and the elderberry bush full of kippers. So, pretty ridiculous that some of the things that happen in this and in the movie, like they turn into yarn people, for example. Um, they become abstractions at some point. I, I think in general, what I what appeals to me about this ship and what makes it so cool is just the ridiculousness of it. I love the sarcasm of the British humor that's involved with it. I, I love the way that it's described as, you know, it's smart or like some of the doors opening in the book. I think they describe it like it's um the the doors when they're opening, like they're happy to greet you and happy to do service for you. They changed that in the movie. I think it was in the movie. It was more like they, um, they groaned almost when they opened and they really laid into Marvin, the, the robot as being a kind of an important, but super negative character. But in, in the book itself, in the original, I, I think it, it's kind of incredible. And it first appears, it's like a, a giant shoe. I think they described it like a white shoe or something. Um, but as far as ships are concerned, definitely one of the most unique. Definitely one of the most ridiculous. I would say arguably more ridiculous than, say, a Mount Rushmore of people. and Just because it's a smaller in size. But um, still. I, I think you're familiar, you've read the books, right? And... Yeah, a uh, couple, couple things. Um, so the original, actually not the book, it is a uh, BBC radio play uh, oh. from 1978. Okay, well, I didn't know uh, that. Yeah, that was also written by Douglas Adams, and then he went on to write the books. Um, 79 is when the first book came out. And it's, like you said, there's been a TV show, there's been... Um, Movie adaptation. There's been movies, been video games. There's been more radio plays later on. Oh, I didn't know that either. Um, most of this um, was still written by Douglas Adams, and I think the the key thing here that you don't see as much with 
other adaptations, obviously with other adaptations of fictional works, books, whatever, there's going to be changes from page to screen or whatever format change. Generally, um, yeah. Those are baked into Hitchhiker's Guide as a concept. Douglas Adams intentionally has every version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is significantly different from other versions while still maintaining the same core story. Many of the details change from iteration to iteration, including the ship itself, what its capabilities are, right. what it looks like, so on and so forth. So um, That's pretty cool that, in itself. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. Um, you know, and, and I think early, you know, those first few Hitchhikers books um, are excellent, I think. And then they kind of fall off a cliff after that, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, that movie's all right. I didn't watch the TV show, like you said. Um, but, but yeah, um, Heart of Gold is definitely one of the more unique concepts in, in a very unique ship. I would and say. last thing I'll add here about it, the original intent intended name for the heart of gold is actually based on the neil young song heart of gold that was a, a little bit of a nod which is a great song uh, if you haven't I listened don't know to it, it, it it's beautiful i mean it's, i don't know a lot of neil young well I, I would say if you're gonna start anywhere this is definitely one of his best songs and if you get a chance take a listen it's, it's worthwhile so I get why he named the ship around it. And I, I love the idea of taking something like that and then just creating a story that kind of fits that narrative, like a small golden box at the heart of the ship. Oh, it's the heart of gold, obviously. But no, actually, it's really just named after Neil Young's song. So anyway. Thanks, Neil. Thanks, Neil. Now, when I think of that, I think of Saving Silverman, but he's talking to Neil Diamond. No, okay. Anyway, you don't get it. Go I'm to number two it. on your list. Number two on my list, final item for my list, since we already covered my number one, is the Battlestar Galactica from the show Battlestar Galactica. I am specifically referring to the 2003 reboot here, not the original. From the 70s. Spoiler um, alert. It is. This is not on my uh, list. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I didn't think so. <laughs> Uh, the class of the Battlestar Galactica is, you guessed it, it's a Battlestar. What? Yeah. Uh, so, I love this ship. My wife and I are actually going through this show right now, so I right away when we proposed doing this, I knew this was going to end up somewhere on the list. Uh, it's a ship that served in the first Cylon War and was designed for that purpose. Now, if you're not familiar with the property of Battlestar Galactica, the Cylons are robots that were created by humanity, and eventually they rebelled and fought. Uh, tried to wipe out humanity. Then uh, they formed a peace, and then several decades later, the Cylons return, and um, with some a lot of technological advancement and um, some clever, um, let's say, infiltration of the uh, of human uh, government and things like that. Um, are able to essentially wipe out 99.9% of humanity in one big attack. Um, and then the Battlestar Galactica is the, um, is the only military ship of the 12 colonies. That's the kind of the grouping of planets that form up humanity in this, in this universe. Um, the Galactica is the only military ship to survive, and that's because the Cylons have an ability to hack 
any network, any computer network. So any network computers, they're able to hack and introduce a virus to, and, um, and then you're, you're done. You're just done at that point. There's nothing you can do. Um, so at the time, the second Cylon war starts, um, it's decades old at this point. It's a bit of a relic. It's, it's literally being used partially as a museum while still maintaining a military crew on it. And as a result of it being this old ship, it doesn't actually have any networked computers on it at all. So it's able to survive that initial onslaught. They're able to get up and running enough to um, to escape, protect another, uh, kind of help gather a fleet of surviving civilian ships and escape the Cylons. And then they're on the run. That's kind of the nature of the show. Uh, for the ship itself, um, one of the main things, kind of like how we talked about with um, the Nostromo and how it's like the space truck, right? It's this it's like truckers in space kind of a thing. Um, the feel of the Battlestar Galactica more than any other item on my list is that it is a military ship. Everything's metal. There's heavy bulkheads, pressure doors. Um, in a lot of ways, it looks like a submarine if there weren't size restrictions, you know, um, if it was just this big old ship. Kind of like how, um, like the Enterprise is technically, you know, a military ship, but it's more friendly. It's built for families and stuff like that. The Galactica is not that. It's a big old chunk of metal in space, you know, mm-hmm. that's here to fight. It's, uh, you know, I'll say outside of the Supremacy, which is just cartoonishly big, um, like you mentioned before, um, the Galactica is the biggest ship on either of our lists so far. It's 1,400 meters long, which is nearly a mile. Um, it's got a heavy hull capable of withstanding nuclear blasts for a limited time. Um, Battlestar Galactica is a no shields franchise. So the ship's getting hit. It's getting hit. You know, you got to have a big, thick metal hull to withstand these hits. Um, it's armed with dozens of heavy guns, missile tubes, nuclear missiles, and hundreds of point defense guns. If you're not familiar with the point defense guns, the heavy guns are more for like, we're trying to damage other capital ships like the Cylon base stars. The, Point defense guns are more of, we're going to shoot down enemy fighters that are approaching the ship, kind of a thing. Um, it's got 40 Viper launch tubes. Vipers are the fighter, basically fighter, space fighter jets that um, are used in this universe. And it literally shoots them out of the ship like missiles. And then it has ex- uh, f- two flight pods on the uh, sides of the ship that can extend outwards and... Uh, are essentially aircraft carrier style landing uh, decks to receive the fighters back in when they're coming back in. Mm-hmm. It's capable of FTL jumps, um, and they have a unique um, kind of like a ra- almost radar based type of sensor system called Dratus that's used in this universe. Um, so that's that's fun too. Uh, commander of the ship. Uh, during our time that we see it on the show is William Adama, although he is far from the first uh, person to command it, because Adama in the first war was you know decades younger, um, and was actually a fighter pilot that served on on the Galactica at that time as well. Uh, and uh, last detail here, it, you know, like I said, it's a really big ship, crew complement of uh, twenty nine hundred people. Pretty big. Big ship. It's really cool. It looks really cool. Uh, And just, I I think the way that they shoot it in the show, the cinematography around the space battles is uh, some of my favorite in all of sci fi. 
just really good looking ship, really good looking uh, battle scenes and stuff that it gets engaged in. You know, it's one of those ships that, and you're you're referring to the um, the original variation of it, right? Because I think there's a few different. I'm I'm talking about the the 2003 version. The 2003, okay. So not the not the 70s version. Right. Okay. So the 2003 one is the one that I think if you showed me a picture and said, "What is this from?" I would know it's from Battlestar Galactica. But having never really watched the show, I mean, I'm familiar with it. I know what Cylons are, but like, I don't know. I I don't really know too much about the the ship itself or the or the show beyond that. But based on what you're saying here. That's a pretty cool ship. It's got a lot of a lot of notable features, and I definitely get why you had it as your number two. So I'm I'm interested to see where this conversation goes in the uh, the the argument portion here because it's one of those things where if I had watched Battlestar Galactica and this was something that was relevant to me, would it have made my list? Probably, but would it have been a top ten? Oh yeah, probably the top five. I don't know. We'll have to. It's wait. cool. We'll wait and see. It is really cool. It's definitely one of the most interesting looking of the ships. Just a just a brick, right? You giving me something else to think about? Well, we've got one left here. We got to hit your number one. Yeah, what we got yeah number one. So, uh, I'm. I'm a little bit concerned on this one because okay. of our one of our restrictions, but I'm gonna Ooh. I'm gonna go for it anyway. Number one for me is the TARDIS from Doctor yeah. Who, yeah. piloted by primarily the Doctor. So I guess let me let me before I get into that give you a chance to. Uh, say anything that you might want to say about the TARDIS, whether or not it was in in fact considered for your list. I hesitate to even call the TARDIS a ship. Oh, it's absolutely a ship. It it's a hybrid time machine and spacecraft. It is intended to be a spaceship. It's like I like you know I have I have a big affinity for Doctor Who. Um, regardless of whether or not you consider it a ship. It's designed to be piloted by one person. Mm, primarily, but it is much larger than that. And it, it that, is, a, it is, you know, bigger on the inside. It's, you know, however, and it's smaller on the potentially, outside. potentially infinitely big um, and all that. But we there, you know, the doctor frequently has companions, but usually, you know, especially in newer doctor who only one companion. Uh, and there's i'm struggling to think of like any instances where more than two people are required to do anything on this ship ah but here's consider it a ship i it's definitely a ship all right so let's go into it then and you can think about this so tardis is an acronym it stands for time and relative dimension in space like i said is a hybrid time machine and spacecraft but it also is a sentient being with some level of free will because it doesn't always take the doctor where it where they want to go, but where they need to go is how it's uh, quoted in the the show. So it has an exterior that mimics a British police box from the 1960s, 
with an interior that is much larger than the exterior, as we indicated, which is frequently it's, described it's, as bigger on the inside. It's supposed to be able to change its exterior look, but it's just been broken. That's right. So that brings me to my first point, the chameleon circuit, which is the camouflage technology that changes the exterior form of the ship to blend into the environment of whatever time or place that it lands in. Uh, The Doctor's TARDIS always resembles the 1960s London police box, though, um, which is an object that was was very common (laughs) in Britain at the time of the show's first broadcast. But it owes the malfunction in the chameleon circuit after the events of the first episode of the show. where the Doctor's TARDIS is stuck in the same disguise for a long period. So there's, there is some, I guess, canonical reason for it. But yes, it is budgetary reasons that it is, in fact, going to stay the same. Uh, at least during the initial run. I'm sure they could have changed it now. But, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But it is broke, so don't fix the brokenness. Okay, anyway. The presence of uh, the, the physically larger space contained within the police box is often as explained as dimensionally transcendental. So with the interior being a whole separate dimension, which contains an infinite number of rooms, corridors, and storage spaces, all of which can change their appearance and configuration. And some of the rooms that we're aware of include a library, a wardrobe, a holding ring, swimming pool. There's a zero room, which is used for safer regeneration between doctors or Um, I think it was used for healing somebody in one of the earlier episodes. It also has a kitchen, a laboratory, a laundry room, a garden, a park, an aquarium, a butterfly room, separate but distinct, and, of course, a zoo. So, insanely large. I mean, infinite, infinite number of rooms, right? So, I guess from the inside, it's arguably the largest one we've ever seen. From the outside, though, maybe not as much. So the TARDIS also allows the Doctor and others to communicate with people who speak languages other than their own and then translate written language to English via the translation circuit, which is similar to the Babblefish, I guess. Uh, But this pre-existed to the Babblefish, so not quite the same. It can produce a large invisible air bubble around its exterior that allows occupants to survive in an area that lacks oxygen. So you can open up the front door in space and just kind of look out because there's a bubble of oxygen surrounding it. And I think in uh, at least one episode that I know of, they the TARDIS created almost like a, a bridge between another spaceship, which allowed oxygen to also exist in that little tunneled area. So pretty, pretty cool capability. It's also strong enough to tow other ships or planets, and it can even withstand a black hole, which is, I guess, pretty strong. I mean, how many of the other ships on our list can withstand a black hole? I think no- it's got sufficient FTL. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, the noise that the TARDIS makes is also iconic and is said to bring hope to all those that hear it within the universe. It it's can, a very good sound effect. It is. It's very cool. Uh, it's also... I, I think, I think I, I'm going to say that is the strongest argument for this thing is, man, what a good sound effect. <laughs> so the, the sound effect is, in fact, so iconic that when the TARDIS um, create, or 
be, it becomes like a human esque form, right? And is talking to the doctor. The doctor is trying to figure out like, how do I know you? And then the TARDIS character opens their mouth and just makes that kind of whooshing noise. And he's like, oh my god, like you're the TARDIS. Like, pretty cool, pretty cool recognizability. Although according to River Song. It only makes that noise because the brake is always on. And if the doctor bothered to take the brake off when they landed, that it wouldn't make that noise because it's like a, a screeching. So I think in one episode, she does, in fact, take the brake off, land it without any noise. And and it's like, well, that's kind of uh, kind of boring. Do you know how they made that sound? Uh, no. How did they make it? Uh, I, I love this. Um, so. He, the, the original sound uh, technician um, used uh, his mother's house key to scrape up and down the strings of a piano. It's kind of terrifying. Yep, and that's how, that's how he made those sounds, is just scraping a key on a piano string. Hmm. Makes a cool sound, as it, it turns did, out. Uh, pretty iconic. Beyond the sound... The TARDIS also can self-repair after suffering extensive damage, including a breach of the hull. Uh, the, the TARDIS was capable of ejecting hostile entities within its interior by simply dematerializing and leaving them behind in the space it was just occupying. It also has telepathic circuits, which allow the TARDIS to transmit messages to individuals through their thoughts couple other systems here that I'll, I'll just note but don't have much to say on there's a vent fan an elevator or i guess a lift that goes to at least three floors there's an anti-gravity shaft seismic scanner gps automatic oxygen supply multi-dimensional technology that allows for access and manipulation of other dimensions several shaving machines and of course a biscuit dispenser which is another another little thing about british humor that they always just have at least one ridiculous thing that's like, why is, okay, a biscuit dispenser? Yeah, all right, I guess that makes sense. So, the, the TARDIS to me, while it can be operated by one or two people, given its overall size and just capabilities, it feels like one that is not meant to be operated by so few people that it could be more efficiently operated if it had multiple people crews even manning it and i i feel like that is not really canon so it's hard to say for sure but yeah because because there's not really any times on the ship where the doctor's like oh if only we had more people i could do more things on this ship no he's it's because he's selfish. everything from his own doctor's selfish we we can't uh you know they're they're a, they're a selfish individual. We can't really uh, use that as a, a gauge. But let, let's save it for the conversation, because I really do believe the TARDIS is, in fact, a spaceship and one of the greatest, and in my opinion, the greatest spaceship of all time. So we're going to I'm going to leave it right there on my number one and right. uh, save any remaining comments that I have for for our next conversation. So the TARDIS is the final element in our top sixes here. Uh, we're going to take another break, and then we'll come back to hit our 7 through 10s, honorable mentions, and then argue about what belongs on this final list. Stick around. 
Welcome back, everyone. If you made it this far, then you're a huge spaceship nerd, or just ship nerd in general. And that's okay, because so are we. But I'd like to think you're probably enjoying yourself, in which case, an honest rating or a review or simply referring a friend would go a long way to get the word out about this podcast. So thank you for listening. And now we're going to move on to the last portion. But first, we're going to round out our top 10 and any honorable mentions. Josh, why don't you kick us off with your 7 through 10 and honorable mentions? All right. Uh, number seven is the Serenity from Firefly. It's a 03K64 Firefly class mid-bulk transport, captained by Malcolm Reynolds. Arguably the homiest ship on my list. Feels warmer and friendlier despite its small size. It's only 82.1 meters long, no armaments, it's not designed for battle. It is large enough to carry two shuttles, but it's mostly designed to carry people and small cargo. Uh, one of the more unique visual designs on, uh, the, on the Serenity is the thrusters on the sides of the ship can aim aftward for forward thrust or downward for vertical thrust. So those are kind of cool. positioned off the sides of the ship. It's a neat look. Uh, the number eight is the Prometheus from Stargate SG-1, not from the movie Prometheus, different ships. Um, this is an X-303 battlecruiser. Uh, it's initially captained by William Ronson. What makes this ship special, it's the first large-scale spacecraft built by Earth in the Stargate universe. It's not capable at, it's not FTL capable at first, uh, but it's later refitted with alien technology to make it so. Uh, it's 195 meters long. It's got shielding, rail guns, missile tubes that shoot cruise missiles, the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, and and you know, like I said, the biggest thing it represents uh, in the show is a massive step forward in Earth's capability to defend itself against extraterrestrial threats. And it kind of marks a shift where Earth, rather than being on the defensive, uh, scared of alien attack at all times, is finally like, okay, we're we're feeling more capable at this point. And it's a it's a it's a cool moment in the show that that the ship embodies uh number nine is the red october from hunt from red, hunt for red october it's a typhoon class ballistic missile submarine captained by marco ramius in the movies played by sean connery it's 198 meters long supposedly the biggest submarine in the world nuclear capable and its claim to fame is that it is outfitted with a caterpillar drive that makes it invisible to passive sonar pretty cool and then number 10 is the high wind from final fantasy 7 which is a rigid airship captained by Sid Highwind. That's 237 meters long and is entirely propeller-powered. Uh, it's designed for a crew of 34 and is outfitted with missile launchers. Uh, fun little detail is that there's a painting of Lady Luck on the side uh, in the style of World War II fighter plane nose art. Uh, special in the game because the freedom it gives you to quickly access just about anywhere in the world, and it's also used in Sid's limit break attack where he calls it in and rains missiles down on your opponents. So that is, uh, that is my 7 through 10. Why don't you uh, go ahead and just round out with some of your honorable mentions and I'll go through mine next. Honorable mentions um, of the non-Star Trek or Star Wars variety. Uh, I have the Argo from Greek mythology. There's a galley. Uh, the Nautilus from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Another submarine. Uh, the Battlestar Pegasus from Battlestar Galactica. Hatak motherships from Stargate SG-1. They're especially notable because they're basically a ship built around a big pyramid. It's very silly looking, and I love them. Um, and the alien ship from District 9. Uh, notable Star Trek ships. We have the 
NCC 1701A and NCC 1701E versions of the Enterprise. Uh, the USS Defiant from Deep Space Nine. Uh, Borg cubes, originally seen in Star Trek Next Generation. Uh, Klingon birds, birds of Prey from the original series. And Romulan Warbirds from Next Generation as well. And then my Star Wars entries here. Uh, the Tantiv Four, also known as the Rebel, Rebel Blockade Runner, seen at the beginning of Star Wars A New Hope. Uh, the Ghost from Star Wars Rebels. The Ebon Hawk from Knights of the Old Republic game. Um, the Razorcrest from The Mandalorian. Nebulon B frigates from Empire Strikes Back, Republic attack cruisers for seeing Revenge of the Sith, and the Mon Calamari star cruiser from Return of the Jedi. Sweet. Uh, that's what I got. How about you? Yeah, I got a, a couple of uh, uh, similar duplicates in here. All right, so let's just go through it. And number seven, I have the Axiom, which is from the movie Wally. It's this Starliner spacecraft created by the company By and Large, which was meant to evacuate humanity from Earth. It's a massive ship, and it is primarily run by AI and robots, except for the captain, which is the, the only real human running the ship. But it has tons of amenities, and everybody starts happy. And enjoys the, I, I guess, uh, dystopian future that is what the the Wally universe becomes. But ultimately, people get fat and start relying on too many, too many of the the niceties that uh, are accompanied by the ship. So it's it's kind of an evil ship in that sense. Also, the main drive that is really running the ship uh, is named Auto. A-U-T-O, and, and that kind of turns a little bit, you know, saving humanity from itself type of situation. Um, but just a, the ship itself is massive and cool and has all these different activities available, and this is just a really cool ship. So that's why it's number seven on my list. Uh, number eight, I also have the Nautilus, but I specifically said the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen version of the oh, Nautilus. No which is the sword of the ocean, right? It, and for me, it was one of the first ones I thought of just because in, in when I first saw it, when I saw that movie, it just looks so cool. It's like a giant piercing dagger through the water. It's technically a submarine, right? It, it's not uh, an above water ship, although it does operate above water, but it was primarily used by Captain Nemo to explore the seas and to sink warships in his vengeance against imperialism. Pretty cool. It's a cool looking ship from an absolutely horrible movie. No, that movie's not horrible. Oh, it's, uh... it's 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 very bad. No. It's the movie that made Sean Connery quit acting. No, it's not that. No, that bad. is that is true. That's his fault. All right, let's not let's All not right. get into that, right? We uh we can debate. I yeah, okay, never mind. We won't come we won't talk about the movie quality. The the ship is very cool. I love that they call it the Sword of the Ocean. All right. Number nine, I have it's either pronounced Aphelion or Aphelion, which I believe is the correct English pronunciation, but in the actual video game that this comes from, Ratchet and Clank, it is Ratchet's ship the Aphelion, and he refers to it as the Aphelion, I think, in at least one of or two of the cutscenes, so we'll go with that. But th this one is, unfortunately, 
primarily a single person operated ship. Yeah, that's like a pilot. That's like a fighter class. But it's also a sentient Lombax ship. And the fact that it's sentient to me puts it a little bit into its own category and and makes it unique enough that I was willing to include it. it the the fact that it's you you get so many different upgrades for this ship. It is uh, great for on planet and in space fighting and just a a really really cool addition to the game itself. And there are several storylines and portions of the the video games where you are focused on this ship. So you spend a lot of time in it. You spend a lot of time using it as both a weapon as well as transportation. And uh, I, I've always enjoyed it. And the faint outline of the ship is similar to a Lombax, which is the species that is the same as Ratchet. It's like a humanoid feline type species. I, I'm not really sure exactly, but it's uh, it, it's kind of reminiscent of that. So um, pretty cool and definitely iconic to me. So that's why I included it. But I put it pretty low on the list because... I couldn't make a strong enough argument to make it a one through five, but being that it's sentient and and that it's uh it's so iconic and necessary throughout the show, I felt like it it's pretty cool and definitely worth a, a mention. So some good games. Uh number ten, I have the Dermstrang ship from the Harry Potter universe. More specifically, it's uh, from the fourth book or movie, The Goblet of Fire. Goblet of Fire. Yeah, the that's the uh, one of the rival schools that competes for the Triwizard Tournament or the, the Goblet of Fire, uh, or it's not the Goblet of Fire, the, the cup um, in the Triwizard Tournament. And the, the ship, when we first see it, it, it is submerged, and then it just kind of emerges out of nowhere uh, above water. And, of course, it's a magical ship and has... a more than just standard ship abilities but uh the the ship itself looked really cool the the crew which is all the students and Igor Karkarov former and possibly future death eater that is normally known as a bad guy it just the whole aura of the ship feels really kind of dangerous at the time but also really cool and people really admired one of the characters in particular that was from that school uh victor crumb uh famous seeker very young age was a quidditch player anyway the the ship itself though is magical it it has what some consider bigger on the inside technology in a in the same way that it's used in the tardis they also use that in the harry potter world uh of magic and while the students uh, from Durmstrang are staying at Hogwarts for this tournament, they are actually housed on the ship. That's where all the bunks and the their stuff is. So the the ship also is a temporary living quarters um, while they're there. So pretty cool ship, pretty iconic. Um, the the ship itself also just looks really cool. It's like when you think of a traditional 1700s like or 1800s galleon ship. I can't remember exactly what era, but that's kind of what you picture. It's the same thing. So, a few honorable mentions. I I do have the Black Pearl on here for an honorable mention. Uh, you had it in under your cool names. Definitely has a cool name, but mm-hmm. the 
the ship itself uh is also pretty iconic and and has a um you know I'll I'll keep going. It, the the Black Pearl is on here. Uh next I have the Millennium Falcon. Um I, I'll give it some bonus points for having a hollow chest set, which is just kind of a cool addition in the lounge. Uh but Immediately after the Millennium Falcon, yeah, I would be remiss not to say, and maybe this one doesn't count as much, the Eagle 5 from Spaceballs, which is actually just a 1986 Winnebago Chieftain 33 that Lone Star and Barf are traveling in. That That is a ridiculous ship, and I thought, well, I'm going to include it anyway it's because fun. it's fun. Uh, maybe not a ship because it's a Winnebago. All right. Yeah, next, I have the Yellow Submarine from the song, The Yellow Submarine. And that one, and just kind of because it's kind of an interesting uh, addition to this list, uh, given that the the song was so popular for so long, and of course it comes from the Beatles. Uh, next, I had Serenity, because I know you had it on your, would you say seven or eight? It was seven. On? Seven. Okay. I wanted to include Serenity, just because I love Firefly, and I think it's an incredible addition, and I'd love to include it, but. In a lot of ways, it's it's unremarkable. I do agree with the the thrusters being uh, kind of a little bit more variable than is traditional, so that gives it some uniqueness to it. But I felt like the the uniqueness to Serenity overall was really the crew itself, not the ship. And so I I had a hard time putting it on my list for that reason. But it is a and a really cool ship. And my, my my one thing I'll say on that, I'm not going to make a big argument because it's not going to make the top 10. No, um, but uh, I would say the the other kind of critical unique thing about it is I think it is incredibly rare in that it is the main ship our heroes fly on um, and does not have any armaments of any kind. Yeah, that it that is one of the reasons that it becomes so iconic uh, and unfortunately was cut short in its lifetime and we we don't really get to see what it is that we probably would have seen had that franchise continued half a season in a movie yay in 2001 terms anyway right uh two more additions here i've got the great fox from star fox sure huge iconic i mean ever since i started playing any star fox games i've known what this was and then when I got to play Smash Brothers, it was one of the levels, and I was like, yeah. "This is awesome!" Like th- I'm, I've always been excited about that ship. But as far as the ship itself is concerned, it, it's just a ship. I mean, it's pretty. It's standard. big and weird shaped. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair enough. It's big and weird shaped, but otherwise, it's it's just a ship. It's no R wing, but the R wing is. Uh, that's very cool. And it's a fighter. Is we want to do top ten ship. fighters? Yeah. No, no, no a, we could do that. It's different. Co- no, down the road, we could talk about that. Last one I have on here is the is Starfighter the International Fleet, which is from the Ender's Game books uh, or movie, if you, I guess, prefer. Um, vi- I do I not. Mean, well, from a visual perspective, being able to see what the Starfighter actually looks like is incredible. I mean, the, yeah. the sheer size of everything. It does look and, cool. And the deploying all the different vessels and the portions of it and like lining things up and then ramming through the the defenses of the enemy um yeah i i just thought the way that that portion of the movie was portrayed was awesome and i i would watch just that portion again 
for the fight scene alone just to see the different aspects of that because it's it's pretty incredible the capabilities of that and you know being manned by several children and other people um child soldiers yeah anyway pretty cool just an honorable mention for me all right well i think that takes us to our very final segment here of let's talk about what's on this unified top 10 list i've moved our top sixes over which leaves us with technically 11 um, because we had that one duplicate of uss enterprise we need to talk about what we want to do with the flying dutchman i think it makes this top 10 but i don't know that we need two entries for it i think we can just boil no. flying dutchman down to one yeah i i would agree i think my intention of it was even though it was the pirates of the caribbean representation it was just the lore itself of the flying dutchman so yeah and that's included in in, in my i you know i definitely included that as one of the representations in mine I'm also going to say I'm okay if the Flying Dutchman isn't super high on the list. No, I, even though we both have it, we both had it at number five. I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think, let me, let me take a look at our list here to see what all we have. Um, I, I would comfortably say it's probably like a number nine on the list. And sure. uh, let's, let's slot, I'm going to leave the descriptor on it here as a, from folklore. Yeah. Um, and we'll at number uh, nine. Oh, sorry, I meant number nine. I moved it to ten. We're 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 talking about in a uh, we've got a shared Google Doc here, uh, where we we can look at these things at the same time. Other stuff. Um, our actual duplicate, the Enterprise D, um, I think should be very high on this list. So you're number four. I mean, one. It's hard to argue it. In my mind, it's probably going to be a, a top two contender. Um, we, I'm we going to move it over into the number one for now. We'll see what happens. Uh, but I'm going to put it there. Okay. Well, I'll think about it. I had some other ones ahead of it, but we can... I have a couple arguments about some of yours. Okay, let's hear it. What do you got? I don't think the TARDIS qualifies. Oh, the TARDIS absolutely qualifies. I think it was... It's a, it's a one per, it's a one-man ship. No, in season four, right, at the end of season four, as the 10th Doctor is regenerating, he indicates that the TARDIS is actually not meant to be manned by one person and that the reason he's having so much trouble piloting it is because it's designed to be piloted by a crew. Here's the thing, though. Most of the time, he doesn't have so much trouble piloting it. Yeah, but he had multiple it, other people doing it. He lets here's, Sarah, here's other, Rose, Mickey, Martha, here's, Jack. Here's the other argument. The TARDIS is less of a ship and it's more of a pocket dimension that can move where its entrance is. Mm, but it actually can move through space as a spaceship. No, it is, but, it is absolutely but, a spaceship. But, and it's meant to the, be the, done by a crew. The interior is a, is a wholly separate dimension. And part of my other argument against the TARDIS is is. the TARDIS is the Superman of sci-fi in that there's the old joke about Superman that the only thing Superman can't do is what he hasn't thought of yet. Yeah. The only thing the TARDIS can't do is what the writers haven't thought of yet. They just jam infinite different things into it just because they can. They wrote themselves an opening for we wrote a thing that can do anything. So they just do that much like the sonic screwdriver. So let me put it this way. If, if we both agreed that it was in fact a spaceship, 
would you have put it on your list? No. Really? Not no. at all? No. No, I, I find that really hard to believe. It's, it's, the TARDIS is fun. It works super well for the, um, for what Doctor Who is and the tone of what Doctor Who is, but you put it up against other spaceships. It's like the, it's not cool. Um, it, it, maybe it's cool in its capabilities, but it's not cool in its design. Um, you don't think 1960s phone boxes are cool? No, I do not. (laughs) Um, you're wrong. And, and I think the design of it is like lazy is the wrong word, but just like, ah, it does whatever we want it to do. It's just, it, it is a, it, it is a narrative. The TARDIS is a narrative shortcut. Hmm. Mm. And it, and, and ultimately it causes as many problems for the writers as it solves. Much like the sonic screwdriver, because they made a thing that was too capable, and then you sure, have different writers that just... take the sonic screwdriver away and they bring it back. And the 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 thing that I find irritating about Doctor Who as a franchise is what anything what everything is capable of changes episode to episode on a whim. Well, what does that have to do with the spaceship that is the TARDIS, though? That's that's Doctor Who. We got to keep these the capabilities separate. The here. capabilities of the TARDIS changes dramatically on a whim. On the whims of the writers, whatever well, are, fits whatever story they're trying to tell right now. You've already indicated the that they're is. broad brushing it with kind of like the Superman effect, right? It's uh-huh. it, it does. I also don't like Superman. Do. Okay, well, I don't really like Superman either, but that's uh, that's neither here nor there. I think I, I think if you are going to shove the TARDIS on this list, it has to be number ten. No, what? Yes. No, there's no way it should not qualify. Hmm. Mm. All right, let's table that for now. I'm not. I'm not willing to concede on that yet. I really think the TARDIS is the coolest spaceship that's out there because of its capabilities, and it does count because it is meant to be manned by multiple crew, and it's done so in in the novels as well, uh, which I admittedly have not read and was Nor able to find during the research. But beyond that, I I just think the TARDIS, even though they use it as needed or they retcon in some ways. Star Wars does the same thing. Star Wars. Oh, what's a parsec? Star Wars, I don't know. Let's retcon Star Wars that. does the same thing with how FTL works. The capabilities of an individual ship don't really change. It's how FTL works. That changes from work to work, work to work within Star Wars. Yeah, um, but if your complaint about Dr. Who is that it's inconsistent, right? that the fan service and the amount of jamming down our throats in the solo movie makes me hate the millennium Falcon from that perspective. So solo is not a good movie. I'm not arguing that. Um, and therefore the millennium Falcon is bad as a result, right? I mean, that's basically what you're saying about the TARDIS. Not at all. I'm saying everything, every day. And I'm not saying the TARDIS is bad. I'm saying the TARDIS is fun. It, that just doesn't stack up to anything else on this list. Hmm. Including your other entries, I think. No. Okay. Well, let let's pause on that for now. We'll come back to it. I'm not willing to concede that it goes anywhere just yet. But let's move on to a different one because, eh, okay. yeah, we're not going to see eye to eye on that right now. What what else do we have on here that maybe we can see a little bit more closely? Um, I'm happy to make the concession that Outer Haven can be wherever you want to put it on this list. 
I think it's super, I think it's both cool, incredibly silly, and very fun, but I'm not married to it, so wherever you want to put it, I think is fine. And see, that that was actually one that I was thinking sounded really cool, and like, the, the way you described it, I'm like, it's ridiculous. And if I, you like it, and you want to put it higher, let's do it. I, you know, I do like it, it, but I was thinking more like number eight. It's uh, Yeah, sure, let's put it number eight. Okay. <laughs> Why not? I'm just happy to have it here. It's just kind of a cool ship, right? I yeah, mean, it's it's not it, one I was familiar with, but I'm like a oh, Mount Rushmore of awesome. of snakes, right? The big bad, all right, big boss, uh, all right. Um, so I think there's an argument to be made for the next one, number seven, the Pillar of Autumn, which you had indicated as just a badass name, but I think we both touched on it from a universe perspective, and I think the Pillar of Autumn is is just a really cool ship, so. I can live with it being on number seven for its name alone. Beautiful. Number seven it is. Let's put it there. Now, uh, it's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Also question for you. Mm -hmm. Given that we have the restriction of one per universe for our own lists, can we have two from a single universe on a unified list? I I don't know if we've done that before. I don't know if we can. I'm going to take the opportunity right now, since we're in this document that has all of them, I'm going to edit the break. The, the, okay, so not a break, but I'm going to edit the time I l- spend looking at this out of the show real quick as we look and see if we've ever done this before. So uh, quick review. We looked through our list. We determined that there were some gray area universe or like, similar entries but ultimately the the bottom line is are we willing to allow two star wars entries into our unified top 10 list and i think given that one is from the originals and one is from the sequels that it is acceptable does that sound yeah, we're gonna sound we're gonna good? allow it okay all right here's my argument for why the supremacy is not good uh oh, oh okay and where are you putting it on the list given that it's i've not, not put good? it anywhere anywhere yet but um you're just saying over the Millennium Falcon or just in general supremacy bad? In general, I don't like the supremacy um, okay. because I think it is a perfect representation of my biggest problem with the sequel movies in that there is very little logic that goes into anything that's happening there. All of their designs are we're going to make everything really big and really powerful and bigger and better than anything in the other movies just because we can. Does it make any sense why? They would build a ship like this? No. Um, It's not as egregious as the fleet of Death Star, Star Destroyer guns in ships in Rise of Skywalker. That's That's the end point, but the supremacy existing how it is, is what leads to that in that third movie. Um... It's lazy writing. It's it's a late, you know, it, 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 it's just, hey, we're going to shove this in here just because we can. Let's just make one that's bigger, I guess. I don't know. Um, so your problem is with the writing, not the ship. I think the ship is a problem. I don't think the ship makes sense. I think I think it's just we're just going to make everything bigger because we can. And as a result, that makes the ship inherently less interesting. Hmm. I think, like, for example, a Star Destroyer, a regular Star Destroyer, or even a Super Star Destroyer are both dramatically more interesting than the Supremacy. Hmm. And we don't see the Supremacy do much. 
it's not even the focus of of no of it's not really anything. meant to do much though it's it's just meant to be symbolic more than anything right it, it's meant to be the fact that the first order has taken over so much of the universe and that it dominates in a way and and this is its representation right it's giant floating city mobile command center slash you know starship that is yeah is able to destroy anything in its path and is, you know, like you said, the biggest and baddest yet. And, you know, making it bigger and badder doesn't necessarily make it better. But in my opinion, in this instance, it's not just a giant ball with an obvious defect. So, well, maybe obvious is the wrong word, but it's not a giant ball with a defect. So I I just go ahead. I just think it's, it's emblematic of how badly the first order is mishandled across all three of those movies. Just completely, completely mishandled from the jump. So you're saying it does a good job of being a representation of the story by being emblematic. Oh, perfect. I'm glad we agree. Nope, that's not the argument at all. <laughs> I, so I, I think the supremacy does do a fine job, given that it is at least a little bit different than some of the the previously rendered um large ships that are like the well it's not a ship per se but the the death star um but i do think the supremacy has a little bit of uniqueness to it i like the way that it's represented i think visually if you look at it 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 looks cool it's a, it looks cool i'll give you that it looks cool it looks very cool right so i if if you want to argue that some of these other ones deserve a higher spot on the list. I'm willing to entertain that, but I think the pillar of autumn is better than the supremacy. Uh, as far as what in every way it's smaller. Doesn't mean it doesn't mean worse. It, it does, uh, by abilities of its armaments. Uh, I think the, yeah, that doesn't make it, doesn't make it the, I, we're arguing for interesting. We're arguing for uniqueness. We're arguing for compelling. And simply bigger guns does not equal any of those. Well, I think if it fought the Pillar of Autumn, it'd probably just wipe it out in no time. Oh, absolutely. You're not wrong. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about what wins in a fight. Yeah, that would be. That's a very, that's a very different list. That is a different list. No, but I do think that the. And that list, the Heart of Gold probably just wins because random bullshit go, you know. Now that's like a lucky roll of the die type situation, yeah. but okay. It's either getting first or last place. I don't know. The TARDIS can Superman, right? It's just defeats all others. Survive the black hole and whatnot. All right. Um, all right. But all right. Let me think about this for a second. Cause I do think the supremacy is pretty badass. I think the sheer size of it does make it more interesting because there are no other ships that are as large as that. And the fact that it crews well, so many people, two, over think, two million I like, people. I think like ships from Dune are bigger, if I remember right. Uh, like the Highliner? I don't remember all the... Uh, I'm, I'm not super into Dune. Okay. I liked that new movie, but I don't know anything else. But I, if I remember right, there were those a while back on the internet. There are those diagrams of like relative ship sizes across media and mm-hmm. if i remember right some of the dune ones were particularly bigger than like anything else out there like just ridiculously huge 
Okay, fair enough. I, I do know that the some of the unique one things about this one though, it has thousands of heavy turbo lasers, right? It's got the anti-ship yeah, but missile batteries. Sargid. It's got the heavy the, the ion cannons and the tractor beam projectors. Do. Sure, whatever. Not, like, not all of the other ships, ships have, have multiple things like that though. This has like all the heavy Star Wars ships have all that stuff. Like which ones? Like the destroyer? Like Star no, it doesn't. Like Star Destroyers. They have turbo lasers. They, do they have, have tractor, beams. tractor beams. They do? Yeah, they do. Yeah, we see multiple the, the like we see multiple times across like the movies and ever the original movies and everything. Star Destroyers tractor beam stuff. Uh, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. There's okay. there's like there's very little that's actually unique about the supremacy other than real big. Does its ability to monitor the hollow net traffic give it uh, a unique ability? I, I feel like that's something that it, it's a an extremely complex communication device that allows for it to monitor all that. Right. If we want to start to, if we want to talk about like Holonet stuff, that's an area, another area of star Wars. That's very vague and very never really clearly defined. Um, are other ships capable of that? I don't know that it's ever mentioned. Um, we don't really know a lot about how the Holonet works in star Wars. Okay. How about this? Mm -hmm. I'll concede supremacy to number 10 on the list as long as TARDIS goes 6. No, Supremacy is better than TARDIS. No! TARDIS shouldn't be on the list. No, come on. TARDIS shouldn't be on the TARDIS list. TARDIS absolutely belongs on this list. Let's talk about the Heart of Gold. Uh, okay. Before we place anything. Yep, that's fine. We can talk about the Heart of Gold. What, do you, what are your thoughts on the Heart of Gold? Um, the Heart of Gold is, you know, let's say there's some similarities to the TARDIS there in that, you know, both British designed um, in a both both British comedy, frequently comedy focused um, ships, Heart of Gold more so than the TARDIS. And I think the Heart of Gold succeeds over the TARDIS um, one that is it is an actual ship, um, mm. but yeah, that is crewed by multiple people. <clears throat> um, but um, is it, though? It is. You know what? Let's not argue that. Let's keep going. It's goofier in design, I would say, but that is that is it's the intentional. Appeal of it. That yeah. is explicitly the appeal of this thing is that this is very silly. This is um, designed to do anything where the the infinite improbability drive doesn't break the narrative because that is the narrative. That's the entire point, right? I think that deserves higher up than the TARDIS, personally. As a result, I would be I would be more comfortable with um, the Heart of Gold being higher on this list as a result, because I think it is. It, it's a good, weird design. It's a that, you know, and I say design, there's a bunch of different designs to it. But that in the idea of the infinite improbability drive, while significantly different than like everything else on this list, is well realized, let's say. Hmm. So what if we were to place it at say number three right now? Yeah, just as let's a, do it. A starting. Let's move point. it over. Let's move it over. We've placed five items so far with that. So far, these positions are not final, but I'm just gonna quick summarize here since we've been arguing for a bit. All right, now number one is the Enterprise D. Three is Heart of Gold. Seven Pillar of Autumn. Eight Outer Haven. Nine Flying Dutchman. We have five spots to fill. Hmm. Well, I can say, given what I know, that the I think the Millennium Falcon is way cooler than the Battlestar Galactica. And I know you had Battlestar Galactica higher on your list, but I would argue the Millennium Falcon is way cooler 
and should be even higher. Like, given that, it, that it's such a uniquely modified individualistic ship. It's it's not mm-hmm. just the ship that it started as. It is well beyond that, right? I mean, sure. in some ways, like the the Mandalorian, you know, now with the uh with the Naboo Starfighter, right? That's uh completely modified and tricked out, like kind of sure. it's reminiscent of that in some ways. So it I mean that is reminiscent of the Millennium Falcon. Um right. now I, I can I'm fine with that. I, I will say for the Battlestar Galactica, um it wasn't unique when it was built, but by the time we see it in the show it is very unique because of how old and how much of a relic it is. Um, and it's because of the, it's, it's, it's a very unique in the world of sci-fi is it's because it's old, because it's outdated is what allows it to succeed. Hmm. And that's usually not the way sci-fi goes, right? That is interesting. It does give it some uniqueness to it. Um, okay. I'm, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna move some stuff around here. I am going to put the Millennium Falcon at number two uh i'm fine with this i'm i'm actually going to move the pillar of autumn up to six and i'm going to slot in the nostromo right after that and the main reason is i just think the nostromo is kind of meh like it's the name is cool and the way you've described it as a very basic ship fits the narrative very well, but otherwise it's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, say it's basic. You know what? Hold on. I'm going to actually change that because I'm, I think the outer Haven is better than the Nostromo. So I'd agree. I'm going to actually move that and that, and then slot that in right now. No, I I wouldn't say my argument isn't the Stroma is basic. It's that it is a blue collar ship. It is a tugboat. It is a semi truck. It is evoking the feel of we are space truckers. I would almost say the the Flying Dutchman is even better than the Nostromo as well. I would also agree Uh, with that. So, okay, well, a little bit more reordering here. Let's uh, hold on. Kind of argued my way around some of this stuff. Um. But so the last thing I'm going to add, because we've got a couple here that still need to be placed. Um, the, the TARDIS, Battlestar Galactica and the Supremacy. The last thing I'll say about the Supremacy, I think the shape overall of the Supremacy, in addition to looking really cool, gives it a unique fighting ability that we hadn't considered, whereas most of the destroyers are more of a wedge or like a really fine angled uh, point shape. It really can only fat uh, fire out, out of either of its sides. Whereas with the larger, almost wing shape of the supremacy, uh, it allows it to point most of its guns forward and target in a much larger range or array uh, than the wedge shape. So I think and it's a design that is not, uh, is more unique. I Uncommon. think. Yeah, definitely uncommon more design, unique. for sure. So for sure, I think that I will, I will give it that it is a, it is a more uncommon ship design in terms of visual style. So from that perspective, I would say it is worthy of a number five position just ahead of the pillar of autumn. I will make a concession that that can go there, but TARDIS has to be at 10. 
Battlestar at four? I can do it. Deal. All right. Put a bow on it. All right. This was a tough one. I. It is. I. That uh, main requirement for the the manning of the ship is is really my my downfall here. Unfortunately, um, admittedly, I had forgotten that we had put that parameter on it. So I believe you I, were specifically the person who set that parameter in yeah, the first place too, because you didn't want to include fighters. I. I think I did, and you're absolutely right. And I'm sure we can go back into our conversation to find that. So I, I was my own downfall, and as a result, I my number one is now number ten, and that uh, doesn't feel great. But you know what? I think something similar happened to you last time we did this. So maybe that's yeah, maybe got, that's just an Rolf evening. got dumped on, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know what? But all right. I'll I'll we got a list. It. Run it back. What we do got we a, got? We got another two contentions, contentious episodes in a row here. Start with 10 through 1. Here we go. Number 10, in on a technicality, the TARDIS from Doctor Who. Number 9, the UC, USCSS Nostromo from Alien. Number 8, the Flying Dutchman from Folklore, and also Scott's special mention of the Pirates of the Caribbean version. Uh, number 7, Outer Haven from Metal Gear Solid 4. Number 6, the UNSC Pillar of Autumn from Halo. Number five, the Supremacy from Star Wars. Number four, the Battlestar Galactica from Battlestar Galactica. The number three, the Heart of Gold from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Number two, the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars. And the best fictional ship of all time, the USS Enterprise NCC-1701D from Star Trek The Next Generation. I could be okay with that list. I think it's... There's some very good ships on this list, yeah. for sure. And we had so many that we've discussed just in general throughout this conversation that it's this feels like a pretty good episode. I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah, I, I would say I'm happy that we not, you know, we majority of spaceships, which I thought was going to happen, but we do have at least one submarine made it and at least one, let's say, traditional sailing ship made it. So I, I, I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that we got those inclusions on there pretty cool even if one of the even if the traditional sailing ship is also a ghost ship ghost ship oh what about the ghost ship from ghost ship wait is that the same ship is that actually what it's referring to no it's a different ship i am not familiar with ghost ship it's a movie it's from like i I knew it's a movie but i don't know i don't know 90s early 2000s not a great movie anyway all right well i I think uh i think we're done i think that's it right i think we're done we did it okay well thank you to the audience you know, our, our immediate friends and family and uh, are, are the only ones that listen to this show. So thank you for listening uh, and taking the time to listen to us argue. I, I'm sure you enjoyed it as much as we did. And if there's one thing that Josh and I like doing, it's having spirited debates. So our next episode, which will be posted in two weeks per usual. Uh, what is our next episode again, Josh? I think we were we were just discussing this. What are we thinking? Yeah, we're we're still workshopping the ideas. We don't have the concrete idea in place, but we want to do a food related episode. So we're we're we have an idea in place, but it's not finalized yet. So we're not quite ready to say what that's gonna be. But just know it is gonna be food related, Pro- mm. probably snack food related even. Mm. That's a good choice. I think I'm comfortable saying that. Yeah, I think that's that's probably about right. I think this will be a good one. We ha- we have not done one that is related to food yet, despite several of our early suggestions being 
surrounding food and food ideas, you know, best cereals, best desserts, we're, you know, we're finally getting best ice cream it. flavors, things like that. Right. I mean, there's 13 episodes in uh, our 13th. Yeah. Right. Lucky 13. Okay. Well, good stuff. Looking forward to that episode. Let's uh, finalize it so we can get going on the conversation. And uh, well, I guess until next time I've been Scott and I've been Josh. And remember with a little practice, you can argue your way into a friendship. Take care folks. I think it's our longest episode, but not by a huge margin. I bet. So our longest to date is the best fictional books, which is 213. I bet this lands at about 220. If I had to guess.